Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Good morning and welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. This is where top performers share their secrets to help you achieve your personal and your professional goals. I am your host, Denise Griffiths, and together with my amazing guests, we bring you inspiring and actionable insights, and they're Mm -hmm. meant to take your life and your business to the next level. Ranked in the top 2% globally, this podcast really is a must-listen, and again, it's because of my guests. So whether you're tuning in for entrepreneurial tips, career advice, or personal development strategies, get ready to turn inspiration into action, challenges into triumphs, and dreams into reality. And my guest today, Eric Oliver, explores the universal impact of persuasive communication, and he's highlighting its pivotal role in shaping perceptions and decisions in everyday interactions. And Eric Oliver boasts an extensive career spanning 40 years in national trial consulting. And I'm excited because this is a topic that we have not covered before. And he has been instrumental in coaching and assisting trial attorneys during that time. His profound knowledge and expertise have played critical roles in numerous cases, leading to unprecedented successes and advantages for clients from prestigious law firms to innovative individual practices, and especially in the specializing in the influence of persuasive communication on the interpretation of case facts and their effect on legal judgments, he underscores the necessity for attorneys to invest considerable effort. And he kind of stressed that during our pre-interview, considerable effort into presenting a well-crafted case narrative through verbal, visual, and nonverbal means. Eric, welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. It's exciting to have you here. Thank you very much. I have to correct one thing. It won't be 40 years until next month, so I still have a chance to mess it up. Oh, well, don't do it here. <laughs> I promise I won't. Okay. I don't want to have, you know, it, I don't want any responsibility for that. But 40 years doing the kind of work that you do is, that's pretty amazing. And we talked, we had a terrific uh, pre-interview, and we talked a lot about focus, which I found fascinating. So before I start peppering you with questions, can you tell us a bit about you and your background that I didn't share and that is important for our audience to know about? Sure. Um, Back in about 1984, I ran across a couple of trial lawyers who explained to me that in those days, and pretty much till today as well, Legal education has a kind of a big hole in it where they should be putting communication, influence, and persuasion over other people. You would think being a trial lawyer, inviting other people to make a decision your way would be germane, but there, at that time, there was nobody training communication for trial attorneys. So I picked up the ball, and here I am 40 years later. I think I'm getting pretty close to getting some of it right. I would think so. And, you know, I really don't watch TV and I don't watch much. I read, I read everything. But it seems to me that 
you know, when you see the attorney walking over to the row of jurors, he's looking small in the eye and he's trying to persuade like crazy. But that only happens at the end or shouldn't that be happening throughout the trial? It should be happening from the time the jurors walk into the building because they're probably going to see you in the hall before they ever even show up for jury selection. And communication, like you know, doesn't have to be verbal. It doesn't even require eye contact. Everything you do is sending some kind of a message. And our friend Terry Murphy points out, you only get seven seconds before they start writing their version of your story in their heads, whether you're speaking or not. So it's really important how you come across, especially at the very beginning. And those trial lawyers that are apparently trying too hard are not going to get the results thereafter. And that's true for managers. It's true for directors. It's true for salespeople and marketing people as well. Very much so. And listen, if you have any kind of empath, you know, if you're partially an empath or you're paying attention, a lot of us can tell instinctively pretty quickly if we're going to like you or trust you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's not required that they like you to decide in your favor. It's a, it's a plus, but it's not absolutely required. As long as your communication shows some respect for the way the other person is processing what you have to offer, how you offer it to them, when, what sequence, the package in which it comes, the things that relate to their lives as much as you know them, all of those things can make a difference. People will decide in your favor, even if they're not particularly fond of you. Well, and when you say decide in your favor, are you talking about the person that's in trouble? I'm going to assume that some of these are criminal liabilities that you're talking about or criminal cases. How, do, the, you oh, go ahead. How do you change those minds? I, I don't I've, I'm, I've done oh. a few criminal cases in my life. Um, back in the beginning, I was working lots of civil cases on both sides of the fence. So civil defense uh, institutions, organizations, corporations, hospitals, as well as civil on the plaintiff side, the injured parties, the folks that uh, have been uh, treated somehow wrong, whether it's financially or physically by somebody else, and they're going after them for some kind of recompense. I did do a few criminal cases early on. They were usually murder cases. And yes, it does make a difference. Um, I can tell you one story. There's a wonderful lawyer who ran for governor of West Virginia a couple of times. His name is Jim Lees. And we were doing a murder case, a murder defense case uh, for a man who had absolutely no sense of humor and the flattest affect you've ever seen. I asked him to ask potential jurors in jury selection a question that would get us some insight into how they were processing how this poor guy came across. And the question was, how would you like him to act during the trial if you end up staying here as a juror for the whole trial? Well, naturally, nobody really understood the question. So they asked him questions back about what do you mean? And he, he gave them a couple of hints about what direction, but he was really waiting for them to tell him how they would process that. One guy looked over at uh, the defendant's name was Lyle. He was twiddling with a yellow highlighter in front of him. And the guy says, well, I don't know what else he might do, but I'd rather he didn't play with that highlighter. Lyle, for the first time in his life, did something funny. He threw the highlighter over his shoulder, folded his hands, and looked straight ahead. 
Everyone in the courtroom burst into laughter, including the judge. Jim turned to me and said, okay, in a murder defense before the jury's even seated, if they're all laughing, we're off to a good start. Wow. I, I don't even want to know. Did this guy, I do want to know, is he in jail? Uh, he went to, to, he was acquitted actually. Oh, be darned. See, you just never know what people are paying attention to. And that goes to something else that I really kind of wanted to chat with you about because you and I, during the pre-interview, which was fascinating, we could have recorded that and called it good, probably should have, but you talk <laughs> about focus and focus and, you know, you're right. Focus is critical. We don't have much of it anymore, but can you provide some historical context on when our collective attention began to wane? And I think you suggested that it predates the widespread use of cell phones. Right. I mean, it's common today. Well, there's two things that are common today. Before cell phones arrived, we all at one point or another would find ourselves complaining about short attention spans, lack of attention on other people's part. People aren't, you know, people aren't dedicating themselves or buckling down or focusing on what they need to focus on. It's a real common complaint in organizations. The problem with that is, is that we would then just pass it off as something that's, you know, laziness or something wrong with their character. Most people, myself included, kind of thought that if I wanted to pay attention, or more importantly, if I want to get somebody else to pay attention to me, I can do it. I can make them attend to me, just like I can make myself pay attention closer. And it's important because we are the sum of our experiences. And our experiences are made up of what we pay attention to. The problem is that most of us assume that if we're paying attention to something, it's because we consciously choose to. And that turns out to be wrong. Over the last hundred years, according to the research, and there's a ton of it on this subject, a lot of it's just come to the surface in the last couple of years. But according to the research, our collective talent for paying close attention to any particular subject for a certain length of time has been getting shorter. That is, the collective human attention span in the Western world has been shrinking for over a hundred years. Now, there are two points along that line where it really peaked. First was the advent of television, as Marsha McLuhan and his heirs all talk about, and we'll mention that a little bit. And then, of course, the advent of the internet and cell phone has made the rise in the difficulty or the impairment of attention almost a straight vertical line. It is unfortunate but true that if you're trying to get a point across to somebody, get a message across to somebody, invite somebody to buy a service or a product, or in my business, invite them to buy your client's point of view, it is important to recognize that people that are in the room with you are less and less capable of giving you the kind of attention, the length of it, the quality of it, the undistracted nature of it, that they need to do the job you're asking them to do. And that is only getting worse. It is. And my question, I'm scribbling down notes like crazy here. When you are and you're dealing with a room full of people who have limited attention spans for whatever reason, maybe they're bored, maybe it's too factual, 
Maybe it's just going on too long. Maybe they didn't want to be there in the first place. <laughs> that would be That's me. Ju- that would be jurors. <laughs> yeah, that would be me. Like, I don't want, I'd be whining the whole time. But the thing is, how do you discover if you're looking at these people, and I'm assuming that you're looking very closely and watching them and observing them, how do how do you get their attention? You can't just go, you know, juror one, juror two, hey, snap your fingers and pay attention. It's mm-hmm. got to be a storytelling. How do you do it? How do storytelling you is one great way? Okay, yeah. good, good, good. Okay, keep going. <laughs> well, it is unfortunate but true that it because they can't do it themselves. The big canard and everybody, it's a bias that everybody has. I have it is that I can make myself pay attention if I want to. That's in my control. Well, in fact, it isn't. And it's getting less and less in our control because of what happens in our environment. And certainly cell phones and the internet have a great deal to do with it. But it started long before then. And the problem is that while we're telling ourselves we can pay closer attention, we're rehearsing behavior that literally rewires the neurobiology in our brains to keep us from paying close attention. Now, if you know that, I mean, it's forewarned and forearmed. If you know that and your job is to persuade somebody and to try to at least harness whatever attention they have available, then you're going to be more sensitive to what it is they need. And that means lots of things, but a lot of them are common sense. The most important Well, one of the two most important things would be to make your message shorter and more concise and make it into a story. We are wired in our brains. There are some people that study genetics that say it's actually in our DNA that we're wired for narrative, that we make sense of our lives and other people's lives by telling ourselves stories about them. As I mentioned earlier, that process can start as fast as seven seconds on first encountering you. So you have to be ready to make sure that the story you're inviting people to write inadvertently or advertently is the one you want them to. And there's plenty of things you can do to make sure that happens, but it is important to recognize that they may not be getting the message because they're just not able to. It's an impairment that we all have. We do. And, you know, I will often tell myself, okay, Denise, sit down and focus the minute I tell myself to do something, my, you know, I'm, I don't want to, you're not the boss of me and off I go. <laughs> so I suspect I'm not the only one that just says, you can't make me do that. Oh, you're backing up the research quite well. And my guess oh, is yeah. almost everybody <laughs> listening has had a similar experience. The research is pretty frightening, actually. There are two books that came out last year that are great on the subject. One is called Attention Span by a scientist, I think from Canada, named Gloria Marks. The other one, the one that I really recommend, is called Stolen Focus by a man named Johan Hari. Both of them have uh, collected, I love people who do this, they write books as journalists about all the research that I don't want to have to read. And this one is, both of them are very, very good on this point. And the common research that they cite about people getting distracted from a task at hand is pretty frightening. They researched it with college students and found out that they distract themselves or come off the task that they were paying attention to every 65 seconds. Now, for the adults that are listening who are starting to think, okay, well, I'm way better than that. Don't get too proud because the measure of how long a worker 
in a regular business setting is able to pay attention without being distracted is three whole minutes. That much, huh? Wow. And it's getting shorter. That's gotten shorter in the last 40 years. And this is why, you know, women in particular, in my my opinion, we seem to pride ourselves on how well we multitask. No, we don't. <laughs> I'm Listen glad you me. brought that no, up. No, we don't. I was glad. I was going to bring that up myself. I'm glad you brought it up. Multitasking is one of the most destructive delusions that our culture has adopted whole hog without any kind of critical consideration in the last hundred years. Multitasking was a term that was stolen from the computer science people who, when they first started building these giant machines, they actually had some that had different channels that could do two or three or four things at once. Some people decided that they would adopt that and say that a human being is capable of the same thing. In retrospect, people like, uh, there's a guy in, in uh, uh, Holland named, uh, oh, what's his name? Soon something. Oh, Soon Lehman. He and his, his uh, uh, crowd have studied this all the way back for 130 years. And what they point out is that you're not really doing two things at once. You're fooling yourself. You do one thing, then you switch off that task and switch to the next one. And you switch so rapidly that your brain tends to paper over the gap to make it feel like you're doing two things at once. What you're really doing is depriving yourself of the full attention to either task that you're trying to do at the same time. Ultimately, what that does is it causes more errors. It causes you to forget what you've done. And it causes you, the worst part, is a lack of creativity in what you're doing because creativity requires a depth of attention that we are slowly making sure by all the practices we do on a day-to-day -day basis, distracting ourselves and so on, that we have less and less of. Depth, if you have no depth, you're going to have no creativity. You have to walk off. You know, if you... Look, I used to be very proud of how much I could accomplish in a day. And then yeah. I realized that I was exhausted and <laughs> cranky. And you don't want me cranky. You know, I'm articulate. I'm an articulate cranky. So you just, it's not a good thing. <laughs> but I finally discovered that the more exhausted I became, the less my creativity came out to play. And I depend on my creativity. So, and I've kind to some degree, follow the, I think it's the Pomodoro method. I will say, Denise, set a timer. You sit down here because when you're in front of a computer monitor, as I am for hours at a day, sometimes I'll find that I'm rereading the same piece of code or the same piece of content that I'm creating. And it's ugly. <laughs> it ain't birdie. As we say in the deep South, I have to leave. I have to get up and move. And for me to move, I go outside, I'll go out with the dog or I'll go outside and stand underneath my pecan trees and, you know, dig my toes into the, the grass to just kind of ground myself. But when I come back, my brain is working again. There are uh, 
Gloria Marks in her book, Attention Span, talks about this. There are a lot of people who talk about it because the, the field, which I didn't even know was there, has divided things up. And they say that attention has like three different networks that function in your head. One focuses it on something, one bores in on it, and the most important one manages it. They call that the executive network. And what you experience when you're exhausted or when you glaze over and stare at the same thing or pass 10 minutes and don't realize that they've gone by while well, you're looking at the same paragraph, all of that indicates that your executive network has now been exhausted for the day. There's a man named Tristan okay. Harris. Well, and that's day. why you feel bad. Oh, see, now I have to go take a nap. Here's the difficulty, <laughs> because the executive network is trying to help you all day long. There are, if you think of it as two giant beakers, one has the capacity of your executive network to help and manage your attention during one day. The other one is the finite amount of attention that you have during a day, which is as many minutes that you're awake during that day. It is literally a finite resource, according to people like Tristan Harris. He uh, was the subject of a, a documentary called The Social Dilemma. He used to be a man who, well, still is a behavioral scientist who was hired by the web companies to start capturing a couple more seconds of your finite resource of attention today more than they did yesterday. And there are thousands of them working every day to find a way to grab more and more and more of that attention. The executive network is all you've got to rely on to keep that from happening. And the problem is that this poor management system of yours, its job is to draw your attention back to whatever it was you just got distracted from. Well, after over a hundred years of practicing distracting ourselves, and keeping ourselves from having full undivided attention, that manager system gets pretty tired towards the end of the day. And eventually you'll, you'll zone out because it's given up. It's, it's done for the day. And that's when you start beating yourself up. Or I, exactly. you know, you'll go to bed and say, okay, oh, geez, what got left undone? Oh, man. So I've been known to jump out of bed at one o'clock in the morning and go <laughs> to my computer and write it all down because it didn't get done. And that's annoying. So don't beat yourself up. There's got to be a better way. Exactly. I mean, uh, the, the bias that we have, that we ought to be able to control something that we practice on a daily basis, losing control of is not exactly something you should do to yourself. Once you recognize where the problem is, where the reinforcement is, where, you're, where it's dangerous for you to go and where it's safer or more productive for you to go, whether you're talking about your own capacity for attention or helping other people with theirs, the path gets pretty clear. The problem is it's also very narrow. Mm, okay. I, I, come, I came across all this. It's, it, it's kind of common, I guess, or often happens when you're looking for a solution to one problem, you discover another one. I was looking for, at uh, a, a set of assumptions that a very large portion of the population have uh, because I was worried about them coming into jury service and the lawyers not being able to align with these assumptions about the way the world works that this really large group of people, about 50% of the jury pool, maybe 40% of the population at large. So what everyone is looking at is a group of people that have an assumption, a set of assumptions about the way the world works, 
that you really need to align the story you're offering them with, because if you don't, they will reject it out of hand. Now, this group is so big that they overcome demographic differences. It has nothing to do with political leanings. There's somebody at, at the extreme left, just like there's somebody at the extreme right. It has nothing to do with socioeconomics or education or age or gender or religion. Uh, very little to do with culture. What it does have to do with is a shared fear that all of these people have. And that is that there are folks somewhere up there at the top uh, some people call it rich, some people call it powerful, some people call it elite, whatever you characterize it as. There are people at the top who do not have my interests at heart. They are rigging the game and they're rigging the game for their benefit against mine. And I would very much like to get back at them if I could just find them. That group of people, I call them the post-truth deciders, are the folks that you have to make sure your case story, if you're a lawyer, your sales story, if you're a salesperson, your marketing story, if you're trying to sell the idea of a company, you better make sure they align with those presumptions because you can't contradict them. Fortunately, a story that aligns with the post-truth decider's assumptions is also going to be accepted by people who are not so resistant to whatever it is you're offering. So it works out pretty well as long as you make sure you don't step on that landmine. While I was looking at them, I started finding research about attention, attention deficits, attention impairment, shorter attention, weaker attention, distracted attention. And I discovered that this is an even bigger group of people. It includes everyone. Oh, yeah, it would have to. And I wanted to this just popped into my head and I'm not entirely certain that it's, it's in context with what we're talking about, but some time ago I decided I needed to declutter. If you walk into my house and I do have a point, if you walk into my house, you say, Oh, it's so nice here. I didn't, you know, it's really nice. I <laughs> live in chronic fear that my attic is going to dump all over me one day. Everything is up there. Fortunately, my office is on the part of the house where the attic is not, you know, there's really no floor space there, but I, I've got so much stuff up there. And I decided I needed to declutter. You know, where am I going to take it? If I'm gone, I'm gone. It's, you know, somebody's going to have to get rid of it. And I came across somebody who said basically that when you're, you know, there was different types of decluttering personalities. And it turns out that mine and again, I do have a point because I used to be very proud of my memory. And then all of a sudden I'm thinking, who was that again? What was, oh, geez, where did it go? Turns out that somewhere along the line, I morphed into somebody who has out of sight, out of mind problems. If I haven't seen it in two years, it doesn't exist anymore. It's gotten worse as my focus and as my attention gets worse. If I haven't seen it... And the first thing in my my pantry, I'm ordering it online. I've had to train myself to go see, do you really need that box of oatmeal? Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, cupboard. So, end up with five. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And one of them's stale. I'm feeding it to the birds. I mean, seriously. Yeah. So, you know, these, and, and I do have a point for that because if I'm that distracted by not understanding what I've got, in my garage or in my pantry for crying out loud what happens when i bring that 
messy mind into a courtroom. Exactly. And that's what the attorneys that I'm working with are learning to make sure that they appreciate, respect, and respond to as needed. Uh, and it's not as easy as people think. This is not about attention span alone. There are actually three aspects of weakening or impaired attention that folks need to pay attention to. Granted, attention is getting shorter. Um, there's several people that have done research, including uh, uh, Mr. Lehman and his crew, that say it goes all the way back about 130 years. And it jumped when TV came in in the 60s, 50s and 60s, and it jumped again when the cell phone showed up. But that's not all of it, okay? Not only is it not as long, I call it fleeting, it's also fragile. It is not as deep. It's much more difficult to give something your full and undivided attention now than it used to be. And many people recognize this and comment about it. Here's the trick. The third aspect makes the other two worse, and that is it's fragmented. We are so much more easily distracted that we don't store stuff. I wrote a book in 2005 called Facts Can't Speak for Themselves. It was for uh, basically an, uh, a book for trial lawyers about how to present in a persuasive way. Um, I did a revision of it about nine or 10 years later called Facts Still Can't Speak for Themselves. And when I started paying attention to the attention problem, I realized that now on any given day with any given juror or, uh, or customer or co-worker or manager, the facts may not speak at all because it may go right past them. I'll and give you a, I'll and give you a it is, We don't want to hear it. We want to hear a story. Yeah. And if you, if you're not equipped to hear it and you notice that that person isn't paying attention, right. Then, then you stop the story. One of the easiest ways to get people's attention back, even though, you know, you're not going to be able to keep it. Okay, it's a difficult task, but it's doable. One of the simplest ways of doing it is to either just stop talking entirely for a moment. You can always blame yourself. I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought or whatever. But as soon as they hear the silence, people will draw themselves back to you. You can also lower your voice and start to whisper, which will also draw people in because people like to be engaged. We're natural engagers. And if they can't hear you very well, they'll lean into doing it. And as soon as they do that, more of their attention is automatically drawn back. A lot of these solutions are common sense. It just takes a certain amount of time and energy to observe when they're needed the most. And that's usually when you're introducing an idea, a message, a direction, an instruction. Okay, so, and that leads me back to my next question, which was going to be, what are some effective nonverbal and visual strategies can we use? You as a, you know, where you operate, me in the social media, how do we get people to pay attention to us and, and draw their eyes back towards us? Um, typically, it's going to be something physical. Um, if Basically, the nature of strong attention or committed, engaged attention is uh, it's usually been referred to as rapport. Rapport is the sense of connection or engagement you have with another person. The longer you have rapport with somebody, the deeper it gets. The challenge is that rapport, unlike what my mom told me, which is you just go and talk about things that you have in common, and all of a sudden you guys will be totally connected because you have so much in common. 
Well, it turns out that language itself doesn't create rapport. It can break it, it can enhance it, but it does not create it. The reason is rapport is a physical event. So one of the things you first wanna do is make sure that when you really need somebody's attention, you're in the same room with them. Zoom is not going to do it. Zoom is better than nothing. Zoom is better than a text or email or a phone call, but it's still not the same. Human beings have not evolved to the point where a two-dimensional Zoom image of somebody, a portion of them, usually about the size of a postage stamp, is not the same as being in the same room with that other primate. Rapport is a physical event. If you want to capture somebody's attention and hold it for as long as they're able to hold it, then I highly recommend that you use a very, very old tried and true technique called mirroring. You physically mirror some aspect of that person's demeanor, their head tilt. They're leaning forward. They're leaning back. They've got one arm up. Take some piece of their behavior and match it while you're talking or just before you start to talk. What will happen is you'll get a response. The corners of their mouth will turn up. They'll focus their eyes on you more. Just the same as a, a little bit of silence or whispering. They'll engage you more. The second you get that, you can stop mirroring because now you're off on the train of rapport. Uh, and usually you don't have to repeat it too often, but I highly recommend if there's a high, big, important point that you need to make, you mirror the person just before you make it and guarantee that you're engaging the part of them that knows how to manage information, that knows how to make decisions, because decisions are not a conscious weighing of pros and cons. That's pretty much like multitasking. It's an illusion that we all tend to invest in. Decisions start at an other than conscious level with a feeling right down the middle of your chest that either says go forward or go backwards. And if you want them to invite, if you want to invite people to decide your direction, you want them leaning forward. The easiest way to bypass the problems of conscious attention deficits is to go straight to the part of the mind that isn't conscious. That means strictly nonverbal, greeting them, engaging them, and then making your point. So understanding that people are going to make decisions not based on what you're, you're looking them right in the eye and you're telling them something, those decisions have probably already been made or being, being made. And I used to think that that was just instinct, but it's not, is it? Oh, not at all. As a matter of fact, there's an old canard in, in trial law that most jurors have made up their minds by the end of opening statement. And that's partially true, but unfortunately, it's also not. What they have done at the end of opening statements, and this is true at the beginning of a, a convention meeting, it's a, the, true at the beginning of a pitch meeting, it's true at the beginning of a set of instructions for a sales team, that what happens at the end of the beginning is that they've constructed a scaffold of a story about what you're trying to put across. It's never going to be exactly the same as the story you've got in your head because people are too unique. Your job is to make sure it's close to the story in your head or close to the one you'd like them to be constructing. There are several rules that make it pretty easy to do that and much, much easier for people that are more and more impaired in their attention. The American Management Association used to say, as an instructor or as a manager, your job is to make sure that you tell people the standard 
and manner in which you want any task done. Well, if they can't pay attention all the way through your dissertation on what the standard and manner are, then it's your fault for not for expecting them to follow instructions they didn't get. Now, the easiest way to manage that is to make sure you've already planned what your story is, the story of your message, the story of your presentation, or in my case, the story of our trial, our case, has three steps, a beginning, a middle, and end, but usually not chronological, at least not for trial. You want to have a, a very short narrative and a very brief presentation. I recommend to attorneys that they listen to what FDR told his son when he asked him, how do I do well at public presentations? And he said three things. He said, be concise, be brief, be seated. This is stuff people want to take to heart. You have a three-step story in your mind. You find the briefest, most concise way of putting it across. But before you start, you make sure you've got a connection with as many people as you can. If you're talking to a large group of people, you can actually use mirroring to determine who you want to select to focus your attention on. Because the leaders of the group will be revealed by the followers in the group. And they'll use mirroring to do it. So as you're watching the group, if somebody in the front row crosses their legs or uncrosses their legs or crosses their arms or leans back, watch carefully around them. There's going to be two or three people behind them, maybe one next to them, that will all uncross their legs or tilt their head back two or three seconds after that person does it. If they do that again, if you see that kind of behavior repeated, that there's three or four people following this guy, you've found one of the leaders in your group. The only thing that isn't happening is speech. But that's going, when they start talking, that leadership role isn't going to change just because they started talking. So you can pick out three or four leaders in a group of 40 people and aim most of your attention and most of your message at them in the hopes that that will then pass on to the people around them when they have a chance to talk. So mirroring isn't just a one-way street. It reveals who the leaders are in a group so that you're able to select them to focus your attention on because your attention is as limited a resource as anybody else's. I would be curious as a highly committed introvert, I tend to be a people watcher when I'm out and about. I'm fascinated by people. I just don't want to talk to them all the time. <laughs> I know that sounds rude, but it's it's who I am. But I have noticed that over time that, you know, you're talking about mirroring, you know, somebody will cross their legs and then the person next to or behind. But I've also noticed, and I'm willing to bet you have as well, that people will be mirroring who didn't actually see it. Correct. Correct. I see that grocery stores of all the places, all the time. Um, it's once you start paying attention to this phenomena, you're going to have a few raised eyebrows here and there because the a capacity for human beings to pay attention. What I didn't tell you is, I see this in jury boxes all the time that a person sitting in front of the leader will cross their legs two seconds exactly. after the leader does too. Exactly. That's what I was trying to, to get out poorly, yeah. but that's exactly what I meant. And I see it. 
the connection is no less powerful at that level than it is if they're facing them. Eye, eye contact has been highly overrated, as has verbal rapport. If you come in at the nonverbal level and then have a nice story to tell, three simple, concise, and brief steps, then the next step to make sure that you're getting in as much as you can, that you're inviting them in a way that's going to be most persuasive, the next step is to make sure that you shift into imagery, visuals, pictures, because the brain is much, much more capable of retaining a compelling image that makes your point of five minutes of your point in one image than it does five minutes of verbiage. So if you back up what you're doing with imagery, especially if it's a presentation, if it's a formal presentation, then out comes the PowerPoint. But there are rules about how to handle the PowerPoint these days, many of which most people know already. Um, uh, there's a guy that I know in trial consulting named Cliff Atkinson. He used to be a consultant for Microsoft, running around the country teaching managers and business leaders how to use PowerPoint properly because everybody did it the way that he calls the shopping list. I make a slide, I put the title at the top, which might as well say my shopping list, and then you have nine bulleted points underneath it, all in language. This is not persuasive. This is the opposite of persuasion. By the time they get to the fourth point, they're going to be gone. But what you do four point, you know, the first time I see that that slide, I'm oh geez, I'm out already. Yes, man, and you're not alone because we've rehearsed it so long. That PowerPoint's been around for a while. Atkinson has very similar prescriptions as to what I'm saying. He says, have a three-step story. Keep your slides in check. Make sure that they are simple and image heavy with a minimum of printed verbiage on them. Make the point with the picture. Then you make the point verbally. Now you've got twice as big of a chance that that's going to stick in somebody's head. And since you know that getting things to stick in people's head is getting harder and harder every day, I can't imagine a good reason not to try that, but there are a couple of things you want to be careful of when it comes to PowerPoint. The one that I, you know, it's kind of a mission of mine to eliminate is the one slide, one line approach where you've got a speaker who has 327 PowerPoint slides for a 30 minute talk. That's because they think that they have to have a slide for every single line they utter. That, if it ever worked, uh, there are certain places I've done that with in trial, but only for a specific reason. What I do is have an attorney run 35 slides that have one line and one image on all of them, making the same point over and over again. Uh, this guy was an agent of this company or whatever. The point isn't that they remember a single one of those slides. The point is that they feel like there were a whole bunch of them and their impression that's left over is that that company controls this guy's behavior. That's one of the few places I can find where that series of slides, one line, one image works. Most of the time you wanna have, if you're gonna talk for 45 minutes or an hour, you wanna have about 12 to 15 slides each one of them designed to make one of the three points in your three-step story. Your script. Yeah, I'm a big believer in scripts. Uh, so am I. Um, I've had difficulty with attorneys over the years because some of them don't. So, But yeah. I'll tell you what, that PowerPoint outline works just fine. 
That would make sense. But my question, and it popped into my head while you were talking, is like, if I have to take my eyes off of you or my ears off of you, I'd rather listen than watch, to be honest. But take, and then take <laughs> a movement. I, I listen between the lines. I hear far more than people think I do. Um, but it, Well, that's, that's obvious when the way you ask questions uh, or promote well, questions, I think, is a better way of putting it. Oh, thank you. you. Are, you're also proving some of the statistics from neurolinguistic programming, which is a little piece of my background. Uh, 60% roughly of the population, if, if you've got three basic sensory channels in your brain, in your higher cortical functions, okay? Pictures, sounds, and feelings, visual, auditory, and kinesthetic. Okay, smell and taste, they, they go through a different system. But if you're talking about inviting people to think, you have three building blocks to get them to do it, and they are built of our senses, pictures, sounds, and feelings. It turns out that people in the population usually have a preference. So they've got one system that they rely on more, that is stronger for them, that is more evocative for them, and they use more to express themselves. 60% of the population is auditory they prefer verbiage over pictures so you're basically proving the numbers about 25 percent of the population prefer pictures over words it's not that they can't talk or that they don't understand language all things being equal they just prefer to look before they listen and only a small percentage about 10 percent prefer to do everything through feelings which um, is kind of the reverse of a lot of human uh, resource stuff in the past few years but that's actually the way that the system is designed. That's the way that people have come down on, on preferences for sights, sounds, or feelings. Most people like sounds. The next largest group is uh, pictures, and the smallest group is the folks that run through their feelings first. I am not in that third group. Well, nor I. <laughs> much too logical for that. But what I was going, to, what I was thinking was that if I have to take my eyes off of you or my ears off of you, and move my eyes over to read text, I've already distracted myself. And unfortunately, that's the lay of the land these days. That distracting yourself is as bad as other distractions that are built into the system, whether it's on the computer or on the cell phone or just in our environment. Um, we distract ourselves. Well, Gloria Mark's research, and so does uh, Hari cites several people that talk about this, that the worker who gets distracted every three minutes, here's a sad thing, but it's if you're going to remember a number from this talk, this is the one. How long it takes somebody to refocus fully on the task that they had at hand before they got distracted. The number is 20, 23 minutes, no, 27 minutes and I got it right the first time, 23 minutes and 17 seconds on average. The reason why it takes so long to get all the way back, fully focused on what you were doing in the first place is because we're in such a habit of distracting ourselves that on average, Mark says, you'll distract yourself two more times before you finally get back. If you let somebody come into your meeting and it's an important meeting where they have to take something out of it, instructions, directions, or in my case, the picture of the client's story, then you do not want them to have a cell phone in their pocket that's on mute because the second it buzzes, the odds are it's going to be 27 minutes before you get their full attention back again. 
I believe you. And listen, I have a rule in my home. Yeah, I have, I love to cook. And yeah, it's one of the things that I do well. And it's very creative for me. And whenever there's a gathering, Easter, the holidays, it's always here in my home. I'm the cook, you know, I'm the hostess. And I have a rule and I've had this rule for a very long time. Turn it off. Don't get it. And if you can't leave it in the car, in the driveway, I will boot you out. And no, you can't have leftovers. (laughs) (laughs) Because my kids, I'm like, bring dishes. You're taking home because I can't cook for anything less than a platoon. I came from a very large family. (laughs) But it's, yeah, no, you're not going to come in my home, turn the TV on, no football. You're not turning it on. You're going to sit here and we're going to converse like human beings. If you can't do that, go away. And you'll find people that get irrationally upset about that on occasion because they think they have a right to multitask when in fact they're multi-distracting. Gloria Marx calls that kind of attention, which is the bad kind of attention, like bad cholesterol. She calls it kinetic attention, where it bounces from one thing to the other. Yeah. One of the other researchers after McLuhan, after Neil Postman, this guy, Douglas Rushkoff, talks about a a phrase I think he coined called digiphrenia, which is the intentional imposing of distracting media uh, 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 influence on everyone that owns a device. Okay, Tristan Harris points out that if you think you're, you're lacking willpower because you can't concentrate because you keep getting distracted half of the time that workers distract themselves according to the research they're doing it to themselves they're not distracted by something outside tristan says hey watch out there's a thousand behavioral scientists like i used to be behind that screen doing everything they can to capture two more seconds of your attention today than you had yesterday And they're going to take that finite resource and use it to their own devices. And make no mistake about it, it is absolutely intentional. And it's more about money, isn't it? You know, you've said that to me yesterday, and I've heard you say it twice today. And what pops into my head is follow the money, follow the money. They're trying to get into your pocket. They're clicks and clicks and clicks. And every one of them is worth more to them than anything else. One of the great authors on this who wrote a book, uh, this is over 10 years ago now, was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, um, a guy named Carr. The book is called The Shallows, and he's talking about how our attention and our capacity for perception is actually getting shallower at the time. That's the way he referred to it. And the metaphor he used is perfect. He said, when I read in the old days, I used to be able to give it my full undivided attention for any length of time. I'd look up and realize hours had passed. He said, I used to be a deep sea diver in language. He says, now more and more, I'm like a guy on a jet ski skimming across the surface. I caught myself doing that. And I'm one of those people I can read all weekend long. I get my chores done. I get my gardening done. And then I I grab my, my iPad because I've got tons of books in there or you know, I have, I tend to interview a lot of authors and they very kindly gift me with the books and I read them. I physically read those books. So it may be, I spend a weekend with a stack of books, five, six, seven of them, and I'm reading them. I have (laughs) noticed though, that it's getting more difficult for me to stay on point. 
stay on point. Yes. And you're uh, not alone. My and guess it irritates is that, me a lot. <laughs> as well, it should. This is a talent that is God given that's slowly being drained away. And these days, it certainly wasn't always that way. But even with the advent of television, it was done for a purpose. And the purpose was commerce. Okay, it just so happens that our finite resource of attention has now become the source of a business model, and it's the internet. And I, the way that people's brains are being rewired, I think Carr also writes about this, is to think the way the internet delivers you information. So the longer you're on the internet, the more you rehearse getting information the way the net does it and not the way your brain used to do it. And that is faster and faster and faster with smaller and smaller bits that are disconnected from each other. And that habit goes back a long way to a man named Neil Postman in a book he wrote called Amusing Ourselves to Death. He's basically the heir apparent to Marshall McLuhan, who some people will remember said, the medium is the message. Well, he was also saying the medium, television at that time, is shaping your brain there are guys that I work with that deal with tra uh, traumatic brain injury in their, in their clients. And uh, many of them end up talking about brain plasticity because your brain still changes after you're an adult. The uh, illusion that it doesn't is an illusion. Postman pointed out, here's one way you can catch yourself rehearsing distraction. And I'm, I want to read a little bit of it because he uh, says it much better than I can. He points out, that in television, in the age of show business, as opposed to the age of exposition, the phrase now this adds to our grammar a new part of speech, a conjunction that does not connect anything to anything, but does the opposite. It separates everything from everything. As such, it serves as a compact metaphor for the discontinuities in so much that passes for public discourse in America today. When a newscaster says, and now this, you have been told that you've thought long enough on the previous matter, approximately 45 seconds, that you must not be morbidly preoccupied with it, say for 90 seconds, and that you now must give your attention to another fragment of news or commercial that's completely separate and completely different than what went before. What we learn to do at that point is lose content and lose meaning by leaving it behind whenever we hear, and now this. Okay, now I'm going to cry. And it was just that simple. It's rehearsal. And in my uh -huh. book, you get what you rehearse, not what you intend. Exactly. I'm going to have to find that book and read it. And, you know, here's the thing. When we, I always thought that if you plunk a child in front of a TV that's the babysitter and you just probably did some serious damage to your child I don't know but it's a guess I've never liked TV it's just never been my thing but we well, and, and I wanted to go back to trying to read books because I am a voracious reader mm -hmm. I'll read the back of a cereal box if that's the only thing in front of me and I hate cereal I don't need it, but I've got to read something. If, if it's printed, I'll read it. I, I agree. That's exactly right. I'll try to, you know, phonetically sound out the words. I mean, it's just how my brain works. But I have yeah. noticed that when I have when I have my iPad, I've you know, these giant iPads, and I read on them. I'm doing. Ex I'm guilty of everything you just described. I will 
you go, ooh, ooh, let me go look at uh, Facebook. Oh, you know, I need to go on LinkedIn and see if Eric left me a message over there. We're talking tomorrow. Oh, let me go. Over. I checked the weather this morning. All I had to do was go outside and stick my finger up to see if it was windy. There but I go. did. Yeah, and I, I get really irritated now with a book book, a physical book. I slow that down a bit. So I'm genuinely thinking about going back as much as I can to read more physical books because mm-hmm. they do slow my brain and I get to steep myself into those, you know, when you're reading a book, you're picturing everything, you know, yes. you're creating your own internal flora and fauna. You can't really do that when you're listening to something. True about reading people as well. Exactly. Exactly. The physical part is so important and it's getting shunted to the side without a second thought most of the time. And it causes all sorts of havoc in our brains that rewire themselves to try to adapt to what it is we're rehearsing. Well, if you're if you know what you don't want to rehearse, then you'll be prepared to shift gears and take a turn away from where you would go normally unthinkingly. And that is a big big help. You can also invite other people to do that too, but you have to recognize where some of the weaknesses have been set and you can't do much about it except to deal with it. So for instance, there's a common uh, concept in speaking or presenting or persuasion that primacy and recency are very, very important tools for any section of a talk that you're going to give, whether it's 15 minutes or this two hours, whether it's a day's worth of trial presentation. Primacy is the thing that people, that stands out to people at the beginning of a, of a presentation. And recency is the last thing that stood out to them at the end. Not necessarily the first thing they hear, but the first thing that registers with them, that's primacy. And the theory was the last thing that registers with them is also very important, that's recency. You cannot trust recency anymore because, so for instance, in trial, if you're getting close to the 1030 break, if you're getting close to lunch, if you're getting close to Friday afternoon where we get to go home for the weekend and forget about court for a day or two, that distracts people. The common rule that you want to start thinking with is if it can distract, it will distract Just getting close to the end of the morning session is enough to distract the majority of jurors from whatever it is you've saved up to try to get recency to work for you. The solution is to just front load everything because primacy still works fine as long as you've got some people's attention. But don't put your trust in recency anymore, any more than you put your trust in a full content dump that, you know, it's 16 paragraphs without a period anywhere in the middle of them and expect them to remember it all. So basically you want to front load because you can always come back to it and that right. is something in their brain. But if it's brand new information that they have to layer on, now you've got a bit of a problem, I guess. So you've got a sales team and you've got a new approach that you want everybody to try and you have a meeting with them on Monday And they come back uh, three weeks later and you look at the results and they are extremely poor compared to what you projected. Now is the time to start again. Rather than criticizing them, simply present the process again because somehow somebody missed the story the first time around. What you do not want to do, because it'll distract people, if it can distract, it will, is repeat things in the first presentation. 
redundancy, repetition now is an easy way to make sure people will stop paying attention to you. I know that a lot of people think that redundancy and repetition is really good for education and training and memory. It doesn't work that way anymore because our memories are impaired by our inadequate attention. It didn't work when I was in school. <laughs> not, it not really for some did of us. not. It was so, te- I hated school. You can probably tell, but it was so tedious. They were teaching one person, teaching a whole bunch of kids in one room, the same exact thing. And you know, even at a young age, I knew that was never going to work. Well, and you can hear history repeating itself. When you learn anchors, like when the teacher turns around from used to be the blackboard, now it's the whiteboard or a screen, whirls around and looks at the 32 children in the room and goes, do you have any questions? And you learn <laughs> then that the answer, the proper answer is absolutely not. No, no I'd uh-uh. like to keep breathing. Yeah, yeah. No, just tell us what to do. Let us out of here. <laughs> And the simple way, the simple fix for that, if you want questions, is not to ask for any questions because they've rehearsed saying no. Ask what questions do you have, presupposing they've got them and they will answer. This is very good in jury selection. (laughs) I would imagine. And, you know, I'm my my question from the very beginning is when you're dealing with a whole bunch of room, a whole bunch of people rather in a packed courtroom you're not just trying to talk with the journey, you're talking juror, you're talking to the people behind you. You You're talking to everybody, aren't you? That's what makes jury selection fascinating. There are certain venues in the country where you'll put 60 or 70 people in the room and the lawyer has to talk to all of them at once. Right. Yeah. And that means you have to engage them. And, um, Over time, the one thing that's worked to engage people pretty instantaneously, give five or 10 seconds of your time, is to mirror them at the outset as you're beginning to talk to them. That will help them engage with you and it'll drag their conscious attention along as opposed to having to go through their conscious attention to try to engage with them, which these days works less and less and less. That leads me back to another word that I wrote down is energy. Because we were talking earlier about mirroring and you'll see somebody who did not see the first person crossing their legs or sticking their hands on their hips and scowling. You didn't see that or they didn't see that, but they might be mirroring unconsciously. So I'm guessing that you have to pay a lot of attention to the energy in the room. Yes. And more often than not, you don't have to pay attention uh, to the actual flow of electrons because people give away a lot in their demeanor. And that's a good example. Somebody who is consistently mirroring you or another speaker or someone next to them, although they've never looked at them or spoken to them, is no less engaged than somebody that's got eye contact with you if they are also mirroring it. That makes sense. And you had mentioned something yesterday in the pre-interview where you can look, you can be looking somebody dead in the eye and you can tell they checked out. Yeah. Watch carefully. You'll see their pupils dilate and they'll, their jaw will get a little bit slack and they're gone. They're disassociated and you're going to have to wait 26 minutes for them to come fully back. This is fascinating. How did, how did you wind up doing this? I think you touched on it a little bit, but Go back to that because it's really fascinating. Back in the 80s, I was living in Minneapolis and I was teaching marketers, marketing trainers uh, in computer companies like Unisys and Control Data and Honeywell. 
I was teaching them persuasion, influence, and communication. And I was teaching mirroring even then. Um, if you're looking for people that take it seriously, they were the first bunch. Well, a lawyer calls me up and asked if I could apply the same thing to trial law. And I said, you know, I'm kind of like chicken soup. I can't possibly hurt you and I might help. And he, he did quite well and introduced me to, at that point, the president of the Trial Lawyers Association there. And he, had, surprisingly, had been traveling to Raleigh, North Carolina once a month for six months to learn the basics of neurolinguistic programming, which I was trying to show them right there. So he asked me how long it would take for me to train a group of trial attorneys in the basics. And I said two days, knowing it would take three, because I knew he wasn't going to go for a three-day program. So he puts together a group of hand-picked plaintiff attorneys for me to work with. And within a year and a half, the lawyers had completely overtaken all of my training work and my uh, persuasion work with the marketeers. Because at that time, as I mentioned earlier, nobody was training communication and influence for lawyers. They just assumed that once they got a law degree, they were also excellent presenters. This was usually a false assumption. <laughs> well, and you, what you're talking about is it's applicable to anybody. I mean, we're all in sales oh, yeah. and marketing. And if you think you can't sell, watch a three-year-old. They don't lose ever. <laughs> you want to have some, if you want to have some fun, mirror a four or five-year-old, okay? They will respond the same way an adult will. But the difference is because the adult now lives in the hypothetical world that we all live in, the world we tell ourselves we're living in. A child still lives in the immediate present. So they will not only respond to you, they'll smile or they'll engage you or they'll look you know, closer with their eyes, but they will also know what you're doing because they'll recognize it. And what they typically will do once they figured out what you're up to is they'll give you something else to mirror. <laughs> and they can do that for half an hour. It's, it's an interesting game to play. Just don't expect adults to do it because they won't realize what's going on. Five-year-olds, five yes. Forty-year-olds, no. Well, and the thing is that they, the magic hasn't been beaten out of them yet. No. They see things very differently than we do. That's what makes it hopeful. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's it's a little depressing to know the scope of the problem. And I told trial lawyers in, in that article I gave you, um, so is all hope lost? Is nobody ever going to win a trial again? And the answer, of course, is no. People are getting verdicts every week in this country. But it's, it is important or incumbent on people who want that to happen, to want your communication in any setting to be successful on the receiving end, to recognize the impairments the receivers are now walking in the room with so that you can adjust your approach to respect and help them grab the message you'd like them to take. Absolutely. Listen, we are just, sadly, we are just about out of time. And this, when I say fascinating, I'm not joking. Can you come back another time and we'll cut, we've got more to share, I think. I know you do. Uh, absolutely. Okay. Anytime. And I know you've got a book coming out, I think, and you mentioned your books earlier. So run over those for me real quickly. Um. The one that I would recommend on this subject is Facts Still Can't Speak for Themselves. It's the second edition of the first one, Facts Can't Speak for Themselves. 
Um, within the year, I hope to have another book out uh, that describes both the post-truth deciders and my prescriptions for how to deal with the attention deficits or the impaired attention of the jury pool, which is basically our population. That one's yeah. going to be called um, uh, Assuming It to Be True. Okay. I'm writing that down. Um, when that book is out, I want you to come back and send me the book and we'll talk about it. Will do. Thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. Before I let you go, is there anything else you want our audience to know about and where can they find you? Um, the website, which is currently under construction to be finished this week, is Metasystems Consulting. It's M-E-T-A Systems Consulting, all one word, dot com. And you can reach me by email at eric oliver Com. And you're big on, well, you will be, um, you're, I think, revamping your LinkedIn profile. Oh, yes. You can oh, be yes. reached over there. You can find me on LinkedIn. Good enough. Eric, I sincerely, I sincerely appreciate your company today. I, re I really appreciate you. The audience doesn't know this, but you came in very last minute. I had to reschedule somebody. And I really wasn't going to even do a podcast today. And you were referred by both, you know, our very good friend, Terry Murphy, who has also been my guest. And we've been friends for a long time, as you have with her. And here you are. And I really appreciate it because coming in within 24 hours is almost never done. So thank you. Oh, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. My pleasure. Listen, I definitely want you to come back. I want that book. And I, I already put it. I'm not going to be distracted. I I can nag. You know, I, yeah. it's called Expect a gentle reminder. <laughs> well, but I won't be, be distracted. distracted from that. So anyway, <laughs> well, listen, again, thank you so much. I hope you have for a sure. great day. And everybody, for our audience, as we conclude this episode today, your feedback means a lot to me. And if you found the show helpful, please support us with a quick review on iTunes. Your input is vital in my mission to inspire and empower more individuals. So don't forget to hit subscribe, leave a review, and share your partner in Success Radio with friends and colleagues. And be sure to go find Eric Oliver on LinkedIn. He's on Amazon. I found a couple of his books over there. <laughs> Connect with him. And thank you for tuning in. I will see you next week. Eric, again, thank you. Thank you. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.